Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining me on the show today is Jonathan Clark. He's a lawyer, essayist, critic, and a contributing editor of City Journal. He's written numerous stories for us on literature, sports, television, and more. Today, we're going to discuss his essay, What's Left of Psychoanalysis, which appears in our autumn 2023 issue and examines the value and the limitations of psychoanalysis. So, Jonathan, thanks so much for for coming on 10 Blocks. Thanks, Brian. It's great to be with you. Since its founding in the late 19th century by Sigmund Freud, psychoanalysis has been both influential and controversial. The true meaning or the consensus meaning about Freud's work has has always been a matter of debate. Doubts about his methods have, have arisen and persist. But still, psychoanalysis does remain a treatment for some for mental afflictions, and its influence on the humanities has been absolutely enormous. Now, certainly that's where I encountered Freud's work is in philosophy departments uh, when I was in graduate school. I wonder, you know, can you give us an overview, potted history of psychoanalysis's development and where it stands today in, in relation to the problems of mental illness? Well, in the United States, psychoanalysis didn't really start to get much traction until after World War II. The Defense Department at the end of the war found itself confronted with many soldiers returning from theaters in Europe and Asia and North Africa suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, what we now call post-traumatic stress disorder. And they needed a way to treat these veterans and and get them functioning again. And, And psychoanalysis became an option that the Department of Defense embraced. And psychoanalysis then, which had always had adherence in the United States, and, and surprisingly for, for a field that was developed in Europe, had always been well-received in the United States. It started to grow enormously after the war. And more and more psychiatrists began to choose psychoanalytic training as their preferred path into, into treating patients, especially in outpatient settings. And by, say, the middle 1950s, Psychoanalysis was sort of the default treatment method in the United States, not for treating in in the inpatient context for people with, say, florid schizophrenia, but for people with uh, depression and anxiety and and phobias and who wanted to be treated in an outpatient setting. The dominance of psychoanalysis lasted into the late 70s and then finally ended, I would say, in 1980 with the publication of the third version of what is known as the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, or sometimes known as the DSM, which is the Diagnostic Bible for psychologists in the United States. Psychoanalysis was essentially written out of the DSM-3. And since then, the field has suffered a decline and to a certain extent even disrepute in the psychological mainstream in America. Recently, though, say within the last five to 10 years, there has been a revival of interest in psychoanalysis, a revival of intellectual interest, and then also a revival of professional interest as the demand for outpatient mental health service in the United States has, has increased dramatically because of the COVID-19 pandemic and, and other, other forces, which I'm sure we could talk about. So there is this, this rising tide of interest in a, in a field that is still regarded with enormous skepticism in mainstream psychology. 
So I think that's where we are now. People are curious again about about Freud, uh, and the field is is growing, but we're not sure where it's going to go. You studied yourself for a time at a psychoanalytic institute, and for a time you considered, you know, becoming a psychoanalyst. Uh, but while you you found this world intellectually stimulating, you ultimately were not able, as you describe in the essay, to, to embrace its uh, main doctrines fully. Many of your fellow students, you note, professed great confidence in psychoanalytic methods, the talking cure, yet they, they couldn't answer basic questions about the mind's function. So I wonder, what was it like being a student of psychoanalysis? How does that work? And what were these limitations that, that you ultimately recognized in, in its approach? One of the reasons I wanted to write the article was to work through some unresolved feelings that I had about my time training as a psychoanalyst, which, as you say, I did not complete. Initially, it was very exciting. I'd been practicing law in law firms for a couple of decades. I come from a family of lawyers. I'm married to a lawyer. And so I had looked at the world through this single window for a long time. And the idea of being exposed to people from a variety of different fields, people of great intelligence and intellectual curiosity, it was enormously rewarding and stimulating at first. And what I found was over time that as I began to pose what I thought were very basic questions to some of the senior members of the Psychoanalytic Institute where I trained, I was dissatisfied with their answers. And for instance, if I said to them, is schizophrenia fundamentally a biological problem or a psychosocial problem, they couldn't give me a firm answer to a question like that. And I think this is a problem that afflicts not just psycho psychoanalysis, but that afflicts psychology in general in the United States, that we simply don't have a consensus model of how the mind works, of what the etiology and treatment of mental disorders ought to look like. We're still in a a benighted state in, in understanding the psychology of, of the human mind. And, and, and I'm, af I'm afraid that's a problem that, that afflicts the field generally. Sometimes I found that, as I said in the article, psychoanalysts knew both too little in the sense that they suffered from an inability to answer these basic questions and too much in the sense that they had so much confidence in their treatment methods that they had a tendency to brush aside these questions as as irrelevant or pedantic, which ultimately was what troubled me and caused me to stop my training. At the top, we both mentioned it, that psychoanalysis is enjoying a revival of public interest. But as you've noted just now, the, the discipline does have shortcomings, but so don't other prevailing treatments for mental illness. So, you know, psychiatric medication, which is is seen as a kind of quick fix sometimes, it does bring undesirable side effects, as, as is also recognized. Cognitive behavioral therapy is an approach which has become probably the dominant form of talk therapy now, narrative therapy. But, you know, it, it, its results have been mixed too, I think it's, it's fair to say, although perhaps there's some promise there. But in your view, you know, what, what is it that psychoanalysis is offering that these other alternative treatments might lack? And where does it fit into this uh, spectrum of approaches to mental illness? Cognitive behavioral therapy was actually founded by disenchanted psychoanalysts, I think it's fair to say. And many of the basic premises are the same. 
And I do think the evidence shows that CBT is effective in certain contexts. It's it's effective in treating post-traumatic stress disorder sometimes. It's effective in treating certain kinds of phobias or obsessive compulsive disorder. It's effective in treating what's sometimes thought of as ordinary depression, although the studies suggest that it's less effective in treating major depressive disorder, which is which is depression, but on a different level of severity and persistence. So if cognitive behavioral therapy is fairly effective in these fields, why do we need psychoanalysis? I think the claim for psychoanalysis is partly that it's seeking more durable change in the patient, that it is less focused on symptoms and more focused on allowing people to tolerate suffering generally and to make suffering a feature rather than a bug of their experience. And once we accept that suffering is part of human life, then maybe it makes us a little braver and a little bit more resilient, and maybe we can live a little bit more fully. We can whistle through the graveyard of suffering if you will. That's the that's the promise or the claim of psychoanalysis, I think. I also think that because of the duration of psychoanalytic treatments, which often go on for years and years and years, I mean, I know many people that have been in training with the same analysts or same analyst or with two analysts or three analysts for a decade or more. There is a kind of bearing witness that goes on, I think, in a culture where people find themselves increasingly alone and where they're not buttressed by church attendance or by strong community ties or a strong sense of ethnic or, or cultural identity, there is a role for the psychoanalyst to play in simply being there week after week and holding your story in their mind and making the experience of living in a very lonely and atomized society a little bit less lonely and a little bit, little bit less atomized. And so that's not symptom relief and that's not transformation of personality, but it may be kind of service to the patient of its own. So that's what I see. The length of treatment possibly offers benefits that a short symptom-focused treatment like CBT simply can't offer. You uh, rightly recognize that Freud was an anti-utopian, and that is underscored by your comments about suffering. There is a current of the profession, though, that, that took on for a time a kind of spirit of liberation. I'm thinking of Freud's influence in the 60s and 70s, which in the work of people like Marcuse and others took on a very different cast, a, a kind of radical political cast uh, that Freud himself would have been horrified by, I think. So, you, you know, in, in the current enthusiasm for or or that perhaps that's too strong a word in the current growth of of interest again in psychoanalysis. Uh, is it this this kind of stoicism or this this recognition that, that suffering is indeed something we have to understand and make part of our lives? Is that part of its appeal? Has the liberationist side been completely left behind? No, and in fact, I think the liberationist side continues to be the dominant strain in psychoanalysis. But this battle uh, goes on, and in fact. It's not entirely resolved in the minds of individual analysts. I think in the treatment room, the idea of teaching people to bear their suffering is still very much alive as a concept. But as psychoanalysis turns outward to the world, then this utopian cast, this leftist political cast is more and more evident. So I think that there's 
to some extent, a split almost. And if you read if you read the psychoanalytic journals, you would see a strong embrace of fashionable critiques of capitalism and critiques of Western ideology and and critiques of of race and and gender and these sort of things. But then when you get in the treatment room, I wonder how how present all of that stuff is. I think there are still people who might be open and even embracing of of the utopian. Freud, who actually practice more in the anti-utopian tradition. As I wrote in, as I wrote in the essay, the anti-utopian tradition is very much the one that appeals to me. What I found in the psychoanalytic institute where I trained was was often, at least on an intellectual level, um, the more the more utopian cast, which I found which I found discouraging. You know, a, a final question, Jonathan. This is something I, I hadn't really followed. And it's, it was interesting. You know, psychoanalysis traditionally is a narrative based understanding of the mind, you know, that, that we script our lives in a way based on these unconscious, unresolved sexual experiences in, in our youth. But it's it's fair to say, I think, that the psychoanalytic approach has traditionally been in tension with a biological approach to human psychology, although there was a biologism in, in Freud too. But recent efforts to balance psychoanalysis with science have produced something called the neuropsychoanalysis movement which seemed quite interesting to me, and I, I didn't really know that much about this. So I wonder, could you describe that a little bit, and how do you assess its potential? I was not very much aware of this movement, and then as I began to conduct interviews for purposes of writing this essay for City Journal, the work of a man named Mark Solms was more and more urged upon me, and Solms is a South African neurobiologist who is also uh, a Freudian-trained psychoanalyst, and he's the leader of this neuropsychoanalysis movement, and he publishes both in, unusually, I would say, he publishes both in psychoanalytic journals and in mainstream psychological journals. And the, the core tool of neuropsychoanalysis is brain imaging. And, and what Solms is attempting to do is to take these MRIs and, and what we can learn about the functioning of the brain through sort of direct observation and map it on to basic Freudian concepts of the unconscious, um, you know, and the, the, the sort of structure of id ego and superego that is, that, that is, uh, that we still some, sometimes think about. And Solms claims that actually Freud's ideas consort very comfortably with what he, with what he sees on MRI scans. I find myself a little bit out of my depth in assessing whether that's a promising area of study or not, but people much smarter than I am, like the famous uh, psychiatrist Oliver Sacks, British psychiatrist Oliver Sacks, whose, whose work is well known in the United States, he felt that it was potentially a, a breakthrough in, in the understanding of the mind. And so we'll have to see where that goes. It's neuropsychoanalysis is, is something that, that ad, people who work in analytic institutes and see patients all day point to, I think, as, as a way of resolving this tension between biological and phenomenological approaches to the mind that has dominated, this division has dominated. American psychology for a long time. So maybe this is a way to break through the impasse. Well, thanks very much, Jonathan. The essay is called What's Left of Psychoanalysis. You can find it on our website. It was in our autumn issue. Don't forget to check out Jonathan's work on the City Journal website. That's at www.city-journal.org. Link to his author page in the description. You can find all of that work there. You can also visit his website, jonathanclarkwriter.com. That's jonathanclarkwriter.com. 
And you can also find City Journal on X at City Journal and on Instagram at City Journal underscore MI. As usual, if you like what you've heard on today's podcast, please give us a five-star rating on iTunes. Jonathan Clark, thanks very much for coming on. Thanks, Brian. I enjoyed it. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.